Today was going to be, you know, sort of like this, this grand opening as we begin this new series in the Gospel of John and, you know, a 35-week journey with Jesus over the next year and change. And we have a reading plan and everything, but, uh, you know, things happen. And, um, and so I'm just you know, trusting that God does things with our whatever we've got, whatever we have to give, um, wherever we're at. God does something in that place. And, and some of you have no idea who, who Grace was, and so maybe it's, it's sad um, because someone died, and, and it's sad because you know people in the church who are hurting, though you may not know it yet. Um, but others of you, um, Kate and Joe's small group in particular, but others as well, um, knew Grace and spent time these last few weeks trying to help, trying to be there for her and you all have shown me what it means to carry the cost of community you've inspired me with your gospel faithfulness and so I'm grateful for that and again all that's to say I don't know how this is going to go I have a sermon to preach that I think is still a word for our community because it's about belief and it's about life and those things are important they were important for grace, too. But I, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to thread the needle. Um, I was writing and rewriting right up until I left for church this morning, so I'm going to ask for your understanding. Uh, some of what I say may be directly applicable to what you're processing, what you're going through, and some of it may not. So I'm going to trust um, God to do what God needs to do in each one of us um, through his Spirit. I will say, um, with the events of this last week and Grace's passing in particular, I've been reminded that what we're doing here is real. It's real. It matters. It might not seem like it matters sometimes. Faith can very easily seem like and be treated like an add-on, an optional extra, and that thing you do with the time you have left over after you've taken out work and play and romantic relationships, and downtime for yourself. But according to every writer in the Bible, according to every serious Christian over the last 2,000 years, and according to Jesus himself, how we relate to God and what we believe about Jesus and about ourselves, and the way we live all of that out matters for every life every sphere of life. We talked about that these last few weeks. And to put it bluntly, it is a matter of life and death. The author of John's Gospel said he wrote this account of Jesus' life that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name so that we might believe in Jesus, and by believing, we might have life. One of the core tenets of Christianity is that believing in Jesus means that we are given eternal life, that we can enjoy life with Jesus forever after death. And I thank God for that, for that blessed assurance that if we believe in him, Jesus will be with us, and and us with him for eternity. But that word life in Greek is bigger than that. The word is zoe. 
refers not just to a quantity of life reaching into forever, but more than that, to a quality of life. Jesus said, I have come that they, that we, might have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. Dallas Willard would describe it as a timeless life, the eternal kind of life, the kind of life that lasts forever, the kind of life that is full of moments you wish would last forever. It isn't just life after death, it's life before life after death too. It's about Jesus with us and us with him on this side of the great sleep too. What we believe can be a matter of life and death. There was an article on psychology today a few years ago by psychiatrist Abigail Brenner. It was entitled, You Are What You Believe. And she wrote, your personal perception of reality is determined by the beliefs you hold. This does not necessarily make them real except for the fact that you believe they are. But your beliefs create and dictate what your attitudes are. Your attitudes create and dictate how you respond. In other words, they dictate your feelings. And your feelings largely determine how you behave. That's true of what we believe about ourselves. How much we think we're worth. How much we think we're capable of. How much we think we are loved and cared for. How much we have to live for. And it's certainly true of what we believe about Jesus. According to John, believing in Jesus can determine whether we live or not. Whether we truly live. And to be clear, this is not me saying if Grace had just believed in Jesus more, she might still be alive. Mental health problems and clinical depression can screw with our beliefs and our perceptions and our feelings and our attitudes. It's real complicated. But there are folks who believe that Jesus wouldn't want them to get professional help or that they just need to buckle down and pray more instead of seeking treatment. And that belief impacts how we live too. This past week, I started reading a book um, by Russell Brand, who's a comedian. It's called Recovery, Freedom from Our Addictions. And this is how he begins, um, with some mild language editing. He says, here in our glistening citadel of limitless reflecting screens, we live on the outside. Today, we may awaken and instantly and unthinkingly reach for the phone, its glow reaching our eyes before the light of dawn, Bulletins dart into our minds before even a moment of acknowledgement of this unbending and unending fact. You are going to die. I know you know. We all know. But because it yields so few likes on Facebook, we purr on in blinkered compliance, filling our days with temporary fixes. A coffee here, an eBay purchase there, a flirt. Some glinting twitch of pleasure, like a silvery stitch on a cadaver, to tide you over. And you're probably too clever to repose in God. Maybe if quantum physics could come up with some force or web or string or something that tethers the mystery to something solid, something measurable, you'd think again. But until then, there's nothing but an empty grave and a blank tombstone, chiseled, poised. So no one's going to blame you if you perch on a carousel of destructive relationships and unfulfilling work whirling round, never still, never truly looking within, never really going home. That's what death before death looks like. An unthinking, distracted, meandering through life, trying to 
Get a little buzz of excitement every so often, never coming to a stop, never taking enough time to connect with God or with the turmoil that's inside yourself, and yet somehow believing that this is all there is. That isn't the life Jesus came to give us. That isn't the life we were made for, but it is often the life we settle for. We keep going down that track until something forces us to wake up and pay attention. Sometimes it's something wonderful, but usually it's something painful. And then we're given an opportunity. It isn't forced on us. We can still choose to distract ourselves or to run away, but we're given an opportunity to reevaluate, to recalibrate, to reassess whether we really want to be on the path we're on. For Matthew and, and me, our hope today and always is the same as John's, that those who encounter Jesus in the pages of this book and in their own lives would believe in him as Messiah and Son of God, and that through believing might have life, life to the full, life after death, and life before, life after death as well. That's our hope for every single person here, every single person who couldn't make it but is, is part of our church community, for every single person in our city and every single person in our world to believe and have life. What does believing look like? Is it as simple as saying, I believe? Is that, is that the magic phrase like open sesame that unlocks the doors to the storehouse of life? Well, yes and no. In one sense, we look at belief as intellectual assent is agreeing with something in theory. To say, I believe in God, is to say, I believe that there is a God, or I believe that the statement that God is real is true. Or we might say, we believe in someone, to connote our confidence in them. I believe in so-and-so to come through. And the term that John uses here and throughout his gospel is the Greek word, pistuo. It can be defined a couple ways. First, to believe is to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. And second, to believe is to entrust oneself to an entity in complete confidence. In both definitions, there's a notion of trust. And trust is proven by how we act. To use a ridiculously mundane example, if I believe you when you say you'll meet me for dinner at 7 p.m. H and Pizza, I'll go to H&P Pizza at 7 p.m. to meet you. If I don't believe you, or if I don't believe you'll be on time, if I don't actually believe you'd eat there, well, then I won't show up. Or I won't show up on time either. Our whole life is made up of beliefs, of trust. I believe the folks who laid the foundations of this school and built this cafeteria did a good job of it, and I'm trusting that I'm standing on solid ground. Otherwise, I wouldn't be standing here. I may not have thought that consciously, but that's the assumed belief that I'm trusting with my actions. We generally believe that the people we tell our deepest secrets to are worthy of our trust. And that's why it hurts if they turn out not to be trustworthy. To believe in Jesus is to trust in Jesus, to trust him, to trust that what he says is true about himself, about God, about the world, about reality, and about yourself. And here's how you know it's true, belief or not. It's whether we act accordingly. Do you believe Jesus when he said we should love our enemies? If so, 
what difference does that make to the way you live your life? Do you believe Jesus when he said we would be judged based on how we treat the poor and the immigrant? Do you believe Jesus when he said that life and rest and freedom are found in him? Do you believe Jesus when he said we don't need to worry because our Heavenly Father has got us covered? Do you believe Jesus when he said that he's always with us by his Spirit and that he will never leave us or forsake us? Do you believe Jesus when he said that you are loved just as you are, that there is always hope and that God is never done with us? If so, what difference does that make to the way you live your life? Because it should make all the difference in the world. And I say that not to induce guilt, but rather to remind you of what's possible, of what's available in Christ. Uh, at this point, I was going to talk about the plan for our journey through John's Gospel. I was going to introduce the reading plan, but I'm going to say it'll be, it's, it's going to be in three parts now, and then this fall, and then next year. And there's paper copies of the reading plan uh, if you want to grab one uh, at the connection table. But for the rest of the time I have today, I want to get us started on this journey with John 1, 1 to 18. I think it's important. I think it gives us some insight into life and what's going on in our lives. And th this is all, all of Scripture, and John is very deep and rich, and there's no way we can spend the time I'd like to spend unpacking it all. So I'm just going to highlight a few things. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning. What does that remind you of? Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, Matthew's Gospel, it traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham, father of the Jewish tradition, because Matthew was trying to show largely Jewish audience how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. Luke's Gospel traced Jesus' lineage back to Adam, first human being, because Luke was trying to show how Jesus extended the invitation of God to all of humanity. John's gospel goes all the way back to the beginning. Because he wants us to know that we're about to meet someone who's been around for a while. Who's seen a few things. Been involved for a bit. Jesus, who was in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, when the earth was formless and void and darkness hovered over the waters, in the beginning was the word. He was there. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Without him nothing has, was made that has been made. In him was life, zoe, certain quality, transcendence of life. And that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, the word for word, as you may already know, is logos. A word doesn't quite capture the sense of all of what logos means, but theologian Dale Bruner recounts one woman's helpful description. She said, I think that the way a human being's audible words relate to his or her inaudible thoughts, which we would very much want to know, is a way that the divine human Jesus relates to the invisible God, whom we would very much want to know. And Bruner continues, In Jesus, his most personal word, God has spoken to us in the most human way possible, 
giving us his innermost thoughts and heart and deeds that are as profound as his words. And the believing human race has experienced deep help ever since. We've said before that Jesus is what God looks like in person. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said that Jesus is the fullest embodiment of God, that all the fullness of God can be seen in Jesus. Christians don't just believe Jesus was a great man or a good teacher, but that in Jesus we encounter God in a human being. We've said before that if you want to know what God is like and how God feels, look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Watch his example. We've said before that Jesus came to earth to show us all, all people, what God is like and what's possible for our lives in God. And John says at the end of today's passage in verse 18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. The one and only Son has made him known. Or as Richard Rohr says, Jesus didn't come to change God's mind about us. Jesus came to change our minds about God. And we'll hear more about John the Baptist next week. So we'll skip to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. And in short, this, is, this, is, this tells us what, what's about to happen, what's, what's going to come. The one who made the world is coming to the world, and he will be rejected by many. And yet to the ones who do receive him, to those who do believe him, put their trust in him. He will give a new identity. He will give a new life and a new family. And we'll see that pattern over and over again throughout John's gospel. And then there's this, this bombshell, verse 14. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. Message paraphrase says, the word became flesh and blood, became human, became one of us, became like one of us, and moved into the neighborhood. The language here, it harkens back to the Old Testament. When God would dwell in a tabernacle, a tent, with his people Israel, and would go with them wherever they went. And this time he's dwelling in a human being that people could touch and see. The word who was in the beginning before anything came to be. Who was with God and who was, was God. The one through whom all things were made and without whom nothing has been made. This word became a human, became one of us. I don't, uh, I don't even have the words to convey um, quite how profound that is. Um, so I'm going to try this. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson is a well-known astrophysicist. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York. He's an all-around brilliant man. And while he describes himself as an agnostic, he was once asked, what is the most astounding fact you can share with us about the universe? So check this out. What is the most astounding fact you can share with us about the universe? The most astounding fact. The most astounding fact. Is the knowledge that the atoms that comprise life on Earth, the atoms that make up the human body, are traceable to the crucibles that cooked light elements into heavy elements in their core under extreme temperatures and pressures. These stars 
the high mass ones among them, went unstable in their later years. They collapsed and then exploded, scattering their enriched guts across the galaxy. Guts made of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, and all the fundamental ingredients of life itself. These ingredients become part of gas clouds that condense, collapse, form the next generation of solar systems, stars with orbiting planets. And those planets now have the ingredients for life itself. So that when I look up at the night sky, and I know that, yes, we are part of this universe, we are in this universe, but perhaps more important than both of those facts is that the universe is in us. When I reflect on that fact, I look up. Many people feel small because they're small and the universe is big, but I feel big because my atoms came from those stars. There's a level of connectivity. That's really what you want in life. You want to feel connected. You want to feel relevant. You want to feel like a, you're a participant in the goings-on of activities and events around you. That's precisely what we are, just by being alive. astounding fact that Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson said is that we're made of the same material that's spread all across the universe, and that's, that's pretty astounding. But to me, as a Christian, John 1.14 may be yet more astounding. The one through whom the heavens and the earth were made, the one who set the planets in motion, who holds up the sky, who scatters the stars and the galaxies across the universe, who came up with the gases and the elements and the laws of physics and thermodynamics long before we ever discovered them. Who thought up the colors of flowers, sunset skies, invited the trees to stretch tall and made creatures to find shade beneath them. This one became one of us. Limited himself to become human, a tiny finite speck on a speck on the third rock from one star in one galaxy so we might know the heart of God. So we might know life with God. So we might experience the fullness of grace and truth. We were made for God, and God knows each one of us. Not one strand of hair on our heads is unknown to God. 
St. Augustine said, O oh God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I don't know about you, but just as Neil deGrasse Tyson says, we can feel both small and big because of the reality of what makes up our bodies. The reality that God, the God whose scope and size is far beyond our imagination, became a human being for us because he loves us, because he knows each one of us by name and cares for every one of us, makes me feel both small and big. Small because I can't, I can't even begin to wrap my mind around that kind of love. And big because God says he loves us like that, each one of us, that much. Wants to be in relationship with every single one of us. Wants us to know our true worth and our true value so we might truly live. But that's not all. I want to read you a few things from, uh, that were written from around the time of Jesus. So I want to point a few things out. This is a prayer from a Roman philosopher called Seneca for the emperor Claudius, who ruled in the middle of the first century Seneca said, um, May this sun, which has shed its light upon a world that had plunged into the abyss and was sunk in darkness, may this sun ever shine. Prayed that over the emperor Claudius. Does that language sound familiar? How about this? This is Seneca describing Claudius' successor, a man named Nero at the beginning of his reign, the good ruler who was the embodiment of the divine reason or logos. Roman statesman Cicero once described Rome as a light to the whole world. Theologian Warren Carter notes, there was a temple that was dedicated in Ephesus in 89 to 90, which is possibly where and when the Gospel of John was written. And during those times, cities in that region erected and dedicated statues to the emperor in the temple precincts. And in their dedications, they used the word grace, charis in Greek, to designate the emperor's gift. The word charis, grace, was commonly used in association with gifts, particularly from the emperor. You see what John was doing. He was writing in a particular context. And right from the beginning of his gospel, he was challenging the status quo. He was challenging the dominant narrative. This is how Carter summarizes it. The scope of this opening passage of John is not individualistic. It's not internal. It's not private or religious. It is cosmic. All things were made through him, and in him was life. Resembling but contesting the claim that Rome has created the world, the prologue, this passage asserts that in the beginning God was created through the word, Jesus. Resembling but contesting the claim that Rome reveals the God's purposes, the passage asserts the revelatory role of the word become flesh. Resembling but contesting claims that the empire is gracious, This passage asserts the fullness of grace demonstrated in Jesus. It's not the Emperor Claudius who's the sun shining in darkness. It's Jesus. It's not the Emperor Nero who's the embodiment of divine reason or logos. It's Jesus. It's not Rome that is a light to the world. It's Jesus. It's not the Emperor from whom we receive grace. It's Jesus. It's God become flesh and blood. It's God becoming a helpless baby and a poor Jew in the Roman Empire at that, a member of a persecuted and oppressed minority. You think God just closed his eyes and spun a globe and pointed and said, that's where I'm going to end up? You think God wasn't intentional about every element of his coming? This was his grand rescue. This was his plan to turn everything right side up. Of course he knew what he was doing in Jesus. Jesus. 
And see, without knowing, without understanding some of this context, what was going on when these words were written, it's really easy for us to unintentionally defang the good news of Jesus, to strip it of its revolutionary and subversive power, to suggest that it only has spiritual implications and to forget that it also has practical and political and ethical implications. The gospel is about life after death, yes. And the gospel is about life before life after death. That Jesus desires life for us in our minds, in our minds, and in our bodies, and in our souls. We're told that our value is measured by our productivity or our popularity or our achievements. God in Jesus showed us that our value is immeasurable to him because he loves us. Maybe some of us struggle with voices that tell us we're no good or we'll never break this destructive cycle we're caught in or there's no hope. God in Jesus reveals all of those things as lies. We've talked in recent weeks and months about spirituality of protest, about the kingdom of God on display in every life and every sphere of life. We've talked about revelation and the challenge of living faithfully in a world that tries to lure us into a death before death in a country that sometimes has a jacked-up relationship with civil religion as increasingly exhibiting a toxic pseudo-Christianity. We've talked about the Psalms and how God longs to be involved in every moment of every day. All of this is connected. All of it is connected. Think about the way Neil deGrasse Tyson explained the interconnection in the universe. Multiply that by infinity, and you might begin to get a sense of how God works, of how God is at work right here and right now. John wrote, the light shines in the darkness. Present tense. The light is shining still. Even in our darkness, even in your darkness. Even in the depths of despair and uncertainty and confusion and anxiety. Whatever darkness you may be in right now, the light is shining. It will break through. And so my invitation to you as we begin this stumbling, fumbling journey into Luke's gospel, into John's gospel, it's simple. Believe and have life. Believe that Jesus is the word, the divine logos, the one through whom all things were made, the son of God, God's chosen rescuer. Trust him. Trust what he says. And receive the life he offers, the kind of life we would hope lasts forever. And believing, as Dale Bruno reminds us, is an ongoing series of life decisions. It's an ongoing series of life decisions rather than only a once-in-a-lifetime decision, though believing does wonderfully begin once in a lifetime. Our gospel, John's gospel, wants us not only to become believers, but to be believers day after day, Sunday after Sunday, until he comes again. So the invitation, as I said before, is to believe and have life. And the opportunity is presented to us every single moment of every day. Maybe you need to start by first asking, what do you believe about Jesus Christ now? And what does that mean for your life now, your life before death? What do you believe about yourself? And do you trust what God has said about you and to you. That you are so loved and so worth it that the eternal word became limited flesh so as to win you back to God. 
and turn the world right side up. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Would you pray with me? God, I don't know if, if the words I said today were useful or appropriate or but ultimately Lord you're the one that does the work your spirit is the one at work and so whatever each person here um, is needing from you I pray that that would land that that would happen We entrust, God, our lives to you, every part of them. Help us to live into that trust. We pray these things in Jesus' name.